what most white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Today's topic is The Green Book. We sit down with host and award-winning BBC broadcaster Alvin Hall to explore how he came about The Green Book and why it inspired him to take this trip, talk about the history of The Green Book and how it's different from what Hollywood would have us to believe. And he also shares with us some heartbreaking and inspiring stories that showcase how black Americans use The Green Book and what they had to do to survive on the road. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Okay, Alvin, um, we've got you on the phone here, and we would love okay. to have you introduce yourself to our listeners, and maybe you can start to tell us what inspired you about you know, doing this journey about the Green Book. I'm Alvin Hall, and I'm the creator, the producer, and the narrator of Driving the Green Book uh, from Macmillan Podcast. I've been involved in media for quite a long time. Um, Many people will know me because I have been teaching about personal finance on Wall Street, and I have been doing programs like Tell Me More with Michelle Martin on NPR and talking a lot about personal finance. But in the UK, I have a sort of different um, image. That image is that I, am, I do cultural programming in addition to talking about money. I first was aware of the Green Book because of an article I read in a magazine about the Green Book and thought, oh, this is an interesting idea. About the same time, I was working on a show in London, and the producer of that show knew another producer who had read a small article about the Green Book and was looking for somebody to work with in producing a show. And she introduced me to this producer in London. His name is Jeremy Grange. We came up with a program. Initially, the BBC only wanted us to do a 27-minute program. But after we did that first trip, which was from Tallahassee, Florida, my past, into the contemporary world of travel, Ferguson, Missouri, we were given 27 minutes by the BBC. And I went and begged to make it longer, and they gave us 37 minutes. Hmm. So that was the first program I did on the Green Book. That program was really powerful, but it never aired in America, probably because we couldn't get all the clearances that we had in England uh, done in America. That was in 2016. I had wanted to do another program about the Green Book, so this idea came to me when I was at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, looking at an exhibition called The Great Migration by Jacob Lawrence. They pulled together all 60 of his paintings. And in that show, there was an infographic showing how much the population of Detroit had increased from 1910 to 1970, the African-American percentage of the population. In 1970, 1.7% of the population of Detroit was African-American. By 1970, it was over 43%. It 
it was a huge increase, one of the largest ones in America. So I thought, all these people are moving north from Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and they're moving to Detroit or areas north of there. So this would be a, a way back home to visit relatives that many of them would have taken. That became the genesis of the idea for this road trip. Wow. Yeah, can you can you kind of paint the picture for us, like uh, the beginnings of that and like what, what was happening in our country around the time at the beginning of this? Like just kind of put in perspective of the, a 10,000-foot view of what's happening in America. There's a wonderful book written about this called The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. Yes. And she describes how all of these people in these small towns in the South were experiencing a uh, deprivation because they were uh, tenant farmers and were, were not being treated right. Many of them were caught in these cycles of poverty because they could only buy food from the store owned by the person they were working with or the company they were working for, and hence they were in perpetual debt. People like doctors and nurses who had professional degrees were limited in the possibilities of what they could do. And if you were clever and had skills, there was not an outlet. So many people started to move north, first to look for better opportunities for work, to improve their housing conditions, to improve opportunities for their children. But as the exhibition at MoMA pointed out, that there was a wave of domestic terror going through the South in those days, mm -hmm. lynching, burning people, killing families. Anytime there was a lynching in every area, there was a wave of people who would leave to move north. The movement was so huge that often white landowners or white overseers or white people who depended upon black people as laborers would send people to train stations, white people to train stations, to try to pull them off the train if they, if they were trying to escape. So a lot of people would leave in the middle of the night. They would leave late or arrange to get out through a whole series of uh, connections because it was that burdensome in the South. And you watch as places like Cleveland, Chicago, Detroit, Milwaukee, all of these places, New York, uh, Philadelphia, in California, Oakland, the black population increased hugely during this period of time. Of course, when they moved there, they discovered that it wasn't the great uh, glory they had hoped. They still experienced discrimination, in, especially in housing. That's when you had the development of things like redlining or putting black people only in certain areas and, the, and then charging them exorbitant rent. All of this comes out of that period. But for those people who held on, who had tenacity, and many, many people did, they took jobs in the car industry. They took jobs in related industries. They earned enough money to be able to buy a car and for the first time had their own freedom. They could set their own schedule. They could travel when they wanted to. They could go to the store when they wanted to. And they could go back home to visit relatives without having to endure the indignation of public transportation. And so it's from this period that the Green Book arises. Well, and I am, everything that you're saying resonates so deeply with me. Um, my parents, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, um, and my parents yeah. grew up in the rural, in Shelby County, a very rural area, um, and a street, a road that had um, lots of black families. And um, 
they were farmers. And both of my parents, Mm -hmm. they picked cotton. They're in their 60s, but they picked cotton when they were young. Um, And of course, as you know, Black people, we adopted um, before adoption was a thing. And so my mother was raised by her grandmother, her mother's mother, um, along with a host of cousins. um, And then um, even along with her aunts and uncles who, you know, some of them were just a little bit older than she was. And then my father, he was raised by his great-grandmother. And she uh, lived for many years. She didn't pass away until I was 20, and her father was a slave. And so... Mm -hmm. It's just make I think about, as you're talking, I'm thinking about my family and um, their part um, in the Great Migration because, yes, there were many uh, people in our family, um, both sides, that left um, to pursue, um, you know, just a better everything. Um, and they were family members who had picked cotton, who grew up, you know, with great-grandmother, grandmother, um, and endured the hardships and so we had like these splits in our family where a group would move to Cleveland. Um, and, yep. and there are still some there in Cleveland. And a group moved to Indiana, Fort Wayne, Indiana. And, um, and so your story, everything that you're sharing actually is just resonating so deeply um, with me and my experience as an African-American woman. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And what you're saying also brings up something that happened to us all along the way. So Memphis is, of course, part of the road trip from Detroit to New Orleans. We stopped at the iconic uh, Lorraine Motel. Yes. But as we interviewed people along the way, Katina, often when we spoke to the younger generation, people your age, Mm -hmm. their parents did not talk in depth about what they had experienced. Yes. And often people say, well, why didn't they talk about it? In many ways, it was too traumatic for them. And so they did not want to pass that trauma on to you. But also, and this is the thing that touched my heart repeatedly, they wanted us, the next generation, to be free of that burden. They wanted us to see possibilities in ourselves that they did not have for themselves. And they did not want us to carry all that burden with us. It was an act of incredible generosity. And that's why doing programs like this is really important for me. Because in many ways, as we discovered during the trip, it opens doors to memories for the people that we interviewed. And that becomes a really strong part of the series. These memories, these experiences, these stories, often which these people have never had a public platform on which to speak about them. And that's why what you're doing is so critical um, because we've lost a part of our history. I'm personally, my, I'm, I personally am very invested um, in those stories uh, because we don't tell them enough and we don't give them the dignity that they are due um, as a people group who lived um, in such a way like where, you know, we we made a way out of no way. We made a dollar out of 15 cents. That's right. Like, and so I was one of the kids when I was little, I, would, I gravitated to, towards my elders and I, I just demanded that they tell me everything about yeah. who they were. Um, and, you know, I just would press and press. And even with my parents now, I'm like, tell me, tell me, tell me. And I can see the pain um, 
Yes. Oh my gosh, yes. the tears that well up. Um, but I'm determined to carry those stories with me, um, with for my generation, but into my children and my children's children. I, I yes. believe that there's so much beauty in those ashes that we need to share because it really shapes how, as, even as you as a creative, have made a space for justice in the way that you express uh, your art. Um, because what you're doing is yeah. an art form and you have created a space, carved a space out for um, justice by telling our stories and such a simple thing as how we traveled, which is such a tremendous thing because we had to travel differently um, and the dignity that you're giving those stories and showing um, people something that they wouldn't even think about. I'm so grateful for you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're most welcome. Yeah. Can you actually, can you start maybe sharing some of those stories that, you know, that showcase kind of how black Americans would use the Green Book and what they had to do to survive? Yes. So I think it's really important for people to know that this was a time in America when having a black person behind the wheel of a nice car was a front to white supremacy yes. and an affront to Jim Crow. Mm. Just being behind the wheel was enough to get you stopped. And the other part of this is that in parts of the South, it wasn't just the police who would stop you. Any white person could stop you yes. and challenge you on the street. That's the thing that many people forget. So in all of the stories, there is this component of running into something unexpectedly. For example, one of the stories that still haunts me is one by uh, Hank Sanders, who lives in Selma, Mississippi. And this shows you the fear of driving. He was at a conference one night at a meeting and there was a white woman at the meeting and she needed to be driven home. And if the people at the meeting drove her there and back, it would be 40 miles when it was on his way to where he had to go. So he agreed to drive her. As they pull out of town, a truck pulls up behind him. Now remember, during this period of time, you had to be very careful as a black person when you drove. You couldn't drive too fast, and you couldn't drive too slow. Yeah. So this car pulls up behind him, and it was he, he recognized it as the type of car, truck that would have gun a gun rack in it as he sped up they sped up as he slowed down they slowed down and they stayed right on him and at one point they pulled to the side and he just knew they were about to get shot and luckily they looked in the car and just sped on but then even though they had gone past he had to debate emotionally whether or not to go on with this white woman in his car because they could have been waiting for him up the road. Yeah. That's the type of fear and story we heard again and again. We also heard about people stopping at gas stations just to pick up gas, hmm. just to buy gas, and not being allowed to use the bathroom. But then it quickly escalates so that the person there challenges the person when they know the bathroom is open and available. And then it quickly becomes a fight and becomes, in one case, a gun being pulled out on somebody and saying, you know, you're not going to use the bathroom here. Those are the types of story we hear again and again. And then we hear the stories of a single black mother mm -hmm. coming back home to visit relatives, right? 
her husband has been killed in an accident or something, and she has three children. And she has to drive all the way south. And the, the child, her daughter, now describes how her mother would drive until they needed gas, until her mother got tired. Her mother would pull on the side of the road and take a nap. The children would be watchful during this period of time. The eldest daughter would be watchful so the mother could take a nap because the mother couldn't stop anywhere because of the risk to her health and the health of her, the safety of her children. Well, and the stories that you capture, as valuable as they are, they're really only part of the stories because you can only interview people who survived. Like any yes. drivers who had encounters like these where they did shoot them, they're not around to tell the stories. And those Southerners who did the killing, they're not going to share the stories. So you only no. have the instances where they did get lucky and got out of it. But for all those, there's many others where they didn't. And many people during the interview immediately draw the connection to today's social and racial justice movement. Yes. They, we didn't even have to prompt them. It automatically came out. They would tell the story of the past, and then they would fast forward and tell a story that happened one year ago, two years ago. Oh, yes. With exactly the same dynamic involving some case themselves, but more often than not involving their own nieces and nephews or their own children encountering the same problems. Too often it felt like deja vu. And Alvin, I experienced that in Arkansas, uh, driving through Arkansas, coming to school um, in Texas, um, where an officer was following me and he kind of, you know, like really drove really close to my tail. Um, And then I sped up out of fear because I didn't know, I I was afraid that he was going to hit me. He was driving so close. Well, in the minute I sped up, he pulled me over and I was alone and he was threatening and intimidating. Um, And we're on a uh, short, we're on a country Arkansas road. Um, And I remember even as a little girl, um, when we went to visit family in Fort Wayne, my grandfather in Fort Wayne, Indiana, how Mm -hmm. my parents were so strategic because I was that kid that was just, I was the oldest. And it was the late 70s, early 80s, and I'm watching um, my parents talk about where to stop. And we had my great-grandfather in the car with us, where to stop. Stopping on the side of the road, like to use the bathroom on the side of the road by the car because you're going through certain towns that are, um, what are the the towns they call them where you couldn't black people? Sundown towns. Sundown towns and knowing that you... you you couldn't go to this gas station or even finally going into a gas station and how everybody was looking at you and we would quickly get whatever we were getting and get out of there. And this, I, I'm, you know, I was born in 72, I'm 48 years old. And so yeah. I, I remember those um, moments and just the fear that would wash over me. Um, but then just yeah. having to use the bathroom in the grass by the car with yep. everybody with with other women standing around you, just the the stripping of dignity that that is, and because we couldn't go to a gas station and use the bathroom in the seventies and eighties. So talk about that. Many people thought that things changed with the passing of the Civil Rights Act. They right. thought that things changed in nineteen sixty four. They did not. Right. In all of these small communities across America, they held on to these. Uh, behaviors because they were comfortable with them 
They didn't want them to change. They felt they were a right. Yeah. That's the part that I think many people don't even realize. The fact that we had to be imaginative. We had to plan out our routes. Typically, we didn't. We try to get to the location before the sunset because we didn't want to be on the road at night. So even today, uh, Dr. Noel Trent, who is one of the directors at the Lorraine Motel and the National Civil Rights Museum, describes the fact that her relatives still get up at 5 o'clock in the morning to take a trip from north to south because they want to make sure they get there before sunset. And another person we interviewed who drove to California, they always drove uh, Lincoln Continentals to California, and another guy drove Cadillac. They drove at night. Yep. Because they got so many tickets just for being black people behind a nice, behind the wheel of a nice car. Absolutely. And uh, Eric Finley said that all the pictures from one of the family's trip is them paying a ticket to a constable beside the road. So their answer was to drive at night and drive just continually all night long so they would avoid the white gaze. What's also interesting is that while I'm doing this series, I live in New York and I'm talking to many of my white friends about this. They have no idea Mm -hmm. that this was going on. And this has been the part that probably stays with me in, in a, both a good and a bad way. Mm -hmm. Uh, I interviewed a wonderful guy in Detroit, Jamon Jordan. And uh, he is a former teacher who is now a tour guide and avid uh, Detroit um, historian. And he just tells the most amazing stories. And it was, this was on our first day of our road trip. And he talked about how the government gave people cover. Mm. And in all of these towns, all of the white people were given cover because the government would make the decision, the town councilman would make the decision, they would often be overtly or subtly implementing racist or bigoted policies. Right. But yet the people would say the government did it, but yet they had voted these people into office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So wow. it, was that, it was that duality that still sits with me. And people say, well, I didn't know about it. And I didn't know any black people growing up. I would go, well, let's look at what was probably going on in your town during that period of time. And they are amazed. And so the series ended up being about an exploration of these memories. Yes, we started in Detroit and we went to uh, Memphis and we went to Columbia, Louisville, Selma, all of these places. But at each of those locations, we would start this conversation about mm. what was it like to use the Green Book here? What was this place like during that period of time? And they described these incredibly vibrant communities yes. away from the white gaze where black people could have a good time, commune, meet friends, eat good food, yes. and relax after having to deal with all of this stuff. And then if you wanted to travel, you had to think about how you're going to travel, where you're going to stop. You had to come up with a plan because you could not get on the road without a plan. Because if you somehow veered off that road, you'd become one of the black people who would disappear and nobody would know what happened. Talk about these businesses 
because you're talking about the thriving communities. Talk about these black businesses that were created in homes, <laughs> like yeah. um, you know the like my uncle who had the you know the barbecue pit thing in front of his front yard and sold sandwiches. Talk about that <laughs> because that was out of oh. necessity. Now that I think about it, more so than you know these businesses that came up to help people as they're traveling um, and as they're yeah. navigating. Well, when the Green Book was first published, most of the ads and listings in it were in the New York area, and they focused on automobile companies Mm -hmm. because, of course, people traveling on the road needed to make sure their cars were in good shape, where they could get repairs, Mm -hmm. where they could buy tires, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. But over time, as the Green Book uh, expanded first down the east coast of Florida and then up to the Mississippi, then in 1938 across America— they decided to focus on each town and the local services provided there. So you had all of these people creating what were known as tourist homes. Yes. Tourist homes were where people would come in, early forms of B&B, <laughs> like yes. Airbnbs, uh, where black women would set up their houses with nice linen, you know, tablecloths, you'd get food, and you would stay in somebody's house. Yep. Because that was a way when they didn't have a hotel or motel nearby for people to stay in. Somebody down the street would be cooking in their kitchen or have some, uh, would be cooking in a local restaurant. And you see all of this entrepreneurship come out of this period of time. Yes. Haircut, uh, hair places uh, for barbershops and beauty salons. You have all of this being created because we couldn't get those services anyplace else. And one of the shows, there's a lady who now is at Tennessee State um, in Nashville. Her name is Dr. Evelyn uh, Nettles. And her grandmother, Essie Nettles, lived in Moss Point, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And her and she owned one of the big, well-known restaurants. And I think it was one of the first restaurants to have a neon sign in that area. But her husband owned the barber shop, right? He owned several other businesses. Yes. And they were, as you said, they, they saw that there was a need and they had the entrepreneurship and the drive to do it. But let's look at the other, another aspect of this. Then you have people like A.G. Gaston in Birmingham, Alabama, who creates the Gaston Motel. You have the Baileys mm-hmm. who create the Lorraine Motel. Yes. All of these businesses that were high-end mm-hmm. provided great services. When we were interviewing uh, Dr. Noelle Trent at the Lorraine Motel, she talked about who stayed there. You had Aretha Franklin staying yes. there. You had... Um, uh, um, Mahalia Jackson staying there. The Staples Singers, Isaac Hayes, all stayed there. When people came to Birmingham, Alabama, uh, all the stars would stay at the A.G. Gaston Motel. Room 30 there was the war room where Dr. Fred Shuttlesworth, the earliest proponent of the the, uh, civil rights movement, Dr. Martin Luther King, and all the locals met to strategize about their campaign. Mm. And when Gaston founded that, he wanted it to be better than the Holiday Inns, and the Holiday Inns were considered the gold standard at that time. So one of the things that all of this entrepreneurship reminds me of, think of how much ingenuity, think of how much just mother wit these people had to have to be able to create and sustain these businesses when the banks weren't loaning them money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All the banks would loan them money, but not enough. (laughs) 
or yes, how they had to find ways to make it work. So it was a lot of creativity going on. So while while the story may talk about uh, the uh, the difficult parts of it, there was a huge amount of creativity going on. And we have one episode, I think it's episode five, that we devote to the entrepreneurship of black women. Because when yes. you look through the green book, you look through the listen, you see the name of one black woman after another black woman. It goes on and on and on who recognized the need and sought to provide welcoming, comforting service and great food for people. Wow. And you know, it's so interesting because, um, again, just resonating with everything that you're saying. And I think about how these businesses how to na- had to navigate sometimes in secret some of the smaller ones yes. that were in smaller in in smaller towns where you know maybe they were were a bed and breakfast but they had to hide that from the white gaze um, mm-hmm. and where you know they were housing civil rights leaders who were traveling through the South. Um, um, I, I understand that Dr. King stayed in um, people's homes. Rosa Rosa Parks, many of the civil rights leaders, they stayed in. Um, they would connect with black churches and they would stay in people's homes. And just having to, when you're hiding Dr. Martin Luther King in your house or you're hiding Mega Evers in your house or Rosa Parks, like just... Um, in the rape of uh, Reese Taylor, they had Rosa yes. Parks um, at her parents, her dad's house, and what, yes. how she was attacked. Um, it's just amazing. Yep. Like, so not only are you managing a black business, but you're managing a black business during Jim Crow, and there's a threat of your business being burned down. There's a threat of you being lynched for having the audacity of uh, to have a black business. But then, you know, you, the, there's times when you have to hide your your genius and your excellence right. um, to protect yourself and your family. Absolutely, absolutely. And we heard that story again and again. Even at the A.G. Gasson Motel, which was bombed, yeah. uh, it's only one, two, three, about three blocks from uh, the famous bombing where the four yes. young uh, women were killed. Yes. Uh, and you look at, and they did it because Martin Luther King and Dr. Fred Shuttlesworth and other leaders were meeting there to strategize, yes. and they wanted to kill them and ruin the business. Yep. So this was, these were commonplace practices all over the South. Yes. And most people in America were unaware because yeah. it was so in the black community. One of the things about segregation and Jim Crow that that I also uh, realized more in depth than perhaps I knew before was that it was designed to put you in your place. Yes. So we didn't have to even give you a second thought. Yep. We didn't have to worry about where you were because we knew where you were. And we don't have to think about what you're doing because we know that we have the police there to protect us against what you're doing. So you were out of sight and out of mind. Yes. And that was something when you go from town to town that you come to realize that that was a real big part of it. But then you discover how locals would vote with their pocketbooks. Mm-hmm. For example, people tell us uh, one young man, um, his name is uh, Jesse Turner Jr. in um I think he's in Memphis. Yes, he is in Memphis. He talks about the fact that when they got to a uh, service station, his father would say, get out and ask if you can use the bathroom. And they'd get out and say, can we use the bathroom? And say, we don't have one. His father would say, get back in my car. And they'd drive to the next one because they're not going to buy any gas 
from somebody who wouldn't let them use the bathroom because nobody could work Absolutely. there all day mm-hmm. and not go to the bathroom. Or when they had um, boycotts of businesses that wouldn't hire black people. They wanted black dollars yep. to come through the door and spend money, but they wouldn't hire you to work in the store. Yep. So uh, Dr. Evelyn E. Nettles talks about the fact that her father wouldn't even let them shop in the sto- store. When there was a boycott going on, you could not shop in the stores. So she said, I know how to... Sh- how." Uh, how to keep my money to myself to hold on to my purse. Oh, yes. Oh, wow. Wow. I could talk to you all day. <laughs> this is just... <laughs> Thank you, It is just so amazing because as I'm listening to you, I'm literally visualizing and seeing the different um, stories of my family of housing people and taking people in and sewing and cooking and cleaning yep. and, you know, just doing all these things to serve uh, the local community, but the greater community of black travelers um, and, exactly. and, and so you know, wanderers. So it, it's just amazing um, to listen to you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes. Powerful. I love doing, I love doing the road trip. I did. Um, it took a year for us to sort of edit it into this form because we have initially started out, uh, my friend Janae Woods Weber, who is the associate producer mm-hmm. with me on this, we started out this drive thinking that we'd be looking for green book locations in each of the cities we visited. And whether it was in Columbus, Ohio, or Louisville, Kentucky, or uh, Nashville, or Selma, we would run into somebody who told us, just an amazing story. One of them, which is one of my favorites, is by a wonderful woman named Mary Ellen Tyus, who we met in Louisville. And she describes uh, her summers spent at um, one of the uh, premier black resorts in the country. Mm-hmm. And I can't believe the name just went out of my mind. There are three of them. Mm-hmm. There is Fox Lane. Uh, there is Oak Bluffs. And then there's this one, and I can't believe I can't remember the name of it. It's empathetic. Um, I'll get it though. That's okay. And she describes how, and she describes how upper middle income black people would go to these areas, and so the families would go up with the children and spend the summers there, and the husbands would go back and forth. Uh, it was, and who knew that the that these places like that existed? But it was where black people of means and accomplishment could go. She talks about when Della Reese used to come mm. and spend time at this place. And all of these stars, the four tops would come to these wow. places and spend time. And they would all be on the lakes. And all the businesses were black. The hot dog stand, the ice cream stand. And this was a huge community uh, up in Michigan. It was just fantastic. So that's mm. the type of thing that you discover on this show, that it's not just people, you know, people making do in the South. There's a whole richer element to this also. And again, it's about black people being in showing ingenuity, yes. creativity, but also knowing that you couldn't show it to the white gaze yes. because you could never tell what the consequences were going to be. Alvin, probably most of our listeners and I mean just honestly most white people probably only know about the green book from the movie that came out a couple of years ago. So what I know that you've kind of alluded to some things just kind of practically, but maybe you can speak to that person who's only seen the movie and has been listening to this current episode. But yeah, what would you say to those people? The Green Book was created by a postman 
named Victor Hugo Green. He worked in New Jersey, but lived in Sugar Hill in Harlem. He and his wife, Alma, would take trips to the South, specifically Richmond, Virginia, where Alma had relatives. And on those trips South, they had a hard time finding services that were welcoming that they could use along the way. In addition to that, Alma had a brother who was a jazz musician who toured. So we're sure that some of the, some of the inspiration for the Green Book also came from the stories of the brother. Wow. So in 1936, Victor Hugo Green decided to make a listing of all the places where you could get goods and services to reduce the frustration for Negro travelers in America. Yes. The first edition was in focused on New, the New York area, gradually included all of New England, and gradually expanded all the way south to Florida up to the Mississippi. And then in 1938, he started to roll it all the way across America. How did he get this information? Victor was a member of the Black Postman's Union. Remember, this was the time of segregation in America, so there would have been a Black Postman's Union and a White Postman's Union. The Black Postman would have that annual conference every year, and of course, the postman would know where the highest quality places to stay were in their communities. And so this was the way he gathered this information. Later on, as it expanded, he had agents in these towns who would help locate these uh, businesses, and then businesses became aware of the popularity of the Green Book, and they wanted to advertise in the Green Book. So it contained every state in the U.S., various cities in the U.S. It would list tourist homes, beauty parlors, uh, automobile places, um, pharmacies, restaurants, nightclubs, shoe repair shops. Every single possible service you could imagine was in certain towns. And you look at a town like uh, uh, Memphis. I mean, they had a lot of listing in Memphis because Memphis was a place of the music industry. You look at Atlanta. Atlanta also had a lot of listings. And some places would have only one or two listings. So this publication continued until 1967. Victor died in 1960. Uh, It was his hope he said in one of his essays that there would be a time when this guide would no longer be necessary, when we would have all of the rights and privileges that are ours as U.S. citizens. But until that time, he would continue to publish the Green Book because clearly it was needed. Alma continued to publish it until 19, I think, 64, and then two friends of theirs took it over and published the last two editions of the Green Book. Um, one of the questions that comes up always when people hear the story is, uh, well, what about the movie? And what's, what's interesting about the movie, I went to uh, an Academy Award screening of the movie. Their representation of the type of place where Don Shirley would have stayed was so inaccurate. Mm. Remember in the scene where uh, the driver is looking for a place for him to stay and he comes up to this sort of motel situation in which people are hanging out and he brings out a chair and sits outside and everybody else looks sort of you know, sketchy? That would never have happened with someone of that caliber. Never. Well, I, I didn't watch the movie. I I didn't watch the movie out of respect for the family because I understood that it was not, it was whitewashed. 
And so I still yeah. have not watched it. <laughs> it's told very much from the point of view of the uh, driver, and it's his point of view throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. But I was just upset that that no one seemed to have talked to somebody who even knew that the Green Book would have had really high-end accommodations for people who were on the road like that. If you went to a town where they didn't have a nice hotel, then the most successful person in town, that could be the local undertaker. It could be the local insurance person. It could be the principal of the school. Whoever was most accomplished would have an extra room in their house and would take somebody like this in for the concert. But most of them stayed in really nice places. So they were not seamy the way they were in uh in the movie and that those scenes just really upset me because i said nobody who made that decision Mm. had ever taken the time to do any research about what the green book really was and or the type of businesses it contained so it's so interesting because there's so many things that you've said that i'm making notes as you're talking um just a few things that i'm thinking about um victor being from sugar hill in harlem so he um was very near or even a part of the Harlem Renaissance, I'm sure, um, and um, just experienced all that black excellence in, in where he right where he lived. And so the possibilities were endless, you know, um, including for a black uh, postal worker who probably was just, I don't know where he was, where his route was, and if he encountered white people at all, but I'm sure people, you know, looked down on him on the daily and as as just a black man and that he would put together um such a great work like a great um this book that embodies like black um ingenuity and entrepreneurship and um genius and it, it, it's just amazing um and he was a postal worker and and it just speaks to how black people always have some other type of hustle you know it's like we yeah. <laughs> you know what i'm saying it's like you know we do what we we do what we got to do uh we got to do we we do what we got to do but but we also dream and imagine and do what we want to do sometimes you know and it's yeah. just amazing yeah. that this brother was like a postal worker and then wrote this book and it was a collective work of people all yeah. over the country but just thinking you know uh I'm thinking about Duke Ellington's tune cuz I'm a musician a singer uh you can take the yeah. A train uh, you know, and how it talks about Sugar Hill in Harlem. Um, but then I also think about, again, how people who were traveling were traveling with their survival survival in mind and just, yep. oh my gosh, just I'm, I'm just going back to my childhood and thinking about the, the, the sandwiches that were packed and just how <laughs> yes, things, yes. you know, and that wasn't because, you know, we couldn't afford to eat on the way. It was because we didn't, we wanted to stop in as few places as possible. And then my grandfather, it just dawned on me. My mother's father had a CB, is it CB radio? Um, company and he made sure like when we went to Indiana like we had one so that we could communicate with him as we're traveling and I understand I gotta call my mama because 
he was keeping, he was making sure that we was going to be okay because we were like breaking one nine, breaking one, like we all had our little names and we made it fun. Yep. But my grandfather was like on the slick, you know, making sure that we was going to be okay. And now I'm looking Absolutely. at his company as something so different because he was a motorcyclist and he had the CB company. Yeah. Like he, it, like he embodied the green book in a sense. Um you know, right. because many black people um, were, you know, purchasing from him. I mean, I'm just sitting here astounded um, and just putting, connecting the dots as you're talking. It's, my mind is blown. My <laughs> mind is completely blown. Yeah. Katina, your observation about Sugar Hill is so accurate. When Alma and Victor lived there, it was a sort of, uh, early part of activism. I think they lived across the street from Duke Ellington yes. or people like that. Yeah. And so it was It was the Harlem Renaissance. And one of the things that was there, people wanted to give back, contribute to some way. We talked to Dr. Eva Bayham at Dillard University, mm. and she talked about the fact that just putting together the Green Book was an act of resistance. Yes. You weren't going to sit there and take it you were going to come up with your own solution. Yes. Victor knew it and hoped it would be temporary, but it was an act of resistance. You won't give us what we want. You won't give us the protection that we want. We'll create our own guide, yes. and our people will create businesses in response to this so that we will be able to travel in America with dignity. Mm -hmm. Wow, and that is what we're doing today as we're divesting from systems, as we continue to divest from systems that don't include us. We're creating our own. We're charting our own. We're, you know, we're we're building our own path. Like, we're just continuing on the legacy that we've been given. It's amazing. Yeah. Wow. It's amazing. It truly is. Wow. It truly is. Alvin, I'm, it's like inspiring and uh, just awesome to hear some of these stories. And um, I mean, just to like recast um, for our listeners, um, mostly white listeners, um, the story of black people in this era, um, like the black people were these underdogs who were overcoming all these obstacles and just coming up with so much creative uh, creativity and hospitality and ingenuity uh, to make life work and finding ways to thrive and push back and resist. Um, it's inspiring. It's incredible. Um, I wonder if... Uh, oh, yeah. You can respond to that. I, I just want to say one thing. Everything you say is absolutely accurate, but I think there's also an interesting psychological element to it. We did not let ourselves be trapped by people who want to hold us in the past. Yes. We let our minds and our imaginations push forward. Yes, we may have, we may have had to uh, adopt a certain persona at some time in order to make it from point A to point B or in order to make sure we didn't get hurt or our children didn't get hurt. But in our own minds, and our own spirit, we were always looking forward. We were always uh, not letting ourselves be trapped by other people's perceptions of us at that time. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's so good. Well, and just real quick, I'm sorry, Garen. It's so amazing. You were talking about black women being entrepreneurs. Um, and I think about yeah. like that legacy of black women. Um, and I, you know, growing up with my, at one point we had five generations alive at one time. And so my great, great grandmother, mm -hmm. great grandmother, great, uh, my grandmother, you know, mm -hmm. just all of these people. Wow. And so I look at black women as just like the consummate um, hostesses, like, just this idea, you know, black women would just always be ready. Um, you know, just growing up, they, there was always an extra uh, extra uh, food, you know, that That's was right. set aside yeah. for guests or an extra place setting yeah. that was, it was like our home, like me growing like our home was always ready for somebody to come in. Um, and yeah. because you oh. never knew, yeah. never knew when somebody was going to show up and when someone was going to have a need. And, you know, it's like, you know, the beds were always made. The house was always clean. Yeah. I mean, everything was yep. always with nothing. Like with many of us having nothing, just having yeah. that extra piece of chicken, that extra, you know, uh, plate, right. uh, place setting, you know, with potato, whatever. And it's just amazing. Like black women just seeing them as these um, hostesses, like just across the country, um, being the face of hospitality um, for our mm -hmm. culture. Um, and I think about the scripture that talks about, you know, entertaining angels unawares, like how black people, we came to embody that um, uh, yeah. that element, that, that gospel, that Christian hospitality, um, and that yep. we didn't know who we're going to get sometimes. We didn't know who was going to walk through the door. We don't know what, we didn't know what state they were going to be in when they walked through the door. Sometimes people were knocking That's on right. doors, screaming and hollering because somebody had been lynched or somebody had been attacked. Right. But just always being ready after working for, working as domestic workers or working, you know, for white people That's all right. day and then coming home and making sure that your house stayed ready for whoever would That's walk right. in. Powerful. Absolutely. Yeah. It is. Absolutely. Yeah, so we have, uh, you know, thousands of white listeners who are going to be uh, listening to this, listening to you. And I just wonder, um, kind of as we wind down, what you would leave them with. Um, takeaways and also just like challenges for them that, that you would give, like that you've, through this work, um, what would you want to say? I think that listeners should educate themselves more deeply. And for this particular podcast, we have a great uh, additional benefit that Apple has helped us create. So with this, we become the first podcast to take advantage of the new Apple Maps curated guide. Wow. So you'll be able to listen to the podcast and visit the places we talk about in the podcast. And there's a description of the place. And you can go to and you can download this. And then as I update it, over time, over the running of the series, you'll be able to learn even more. So using Apple Maps and their curated guides, you can have an even more immersive experience with this. In addition, I'm also uh, giving a reading list, which will, of course, include Isabel Wilkerson's uh, The Warmth of Other Sun. Yes. And I'm curating music for it. So you'll be able to have music from this period of time, including the songs that were written at the Lorraine Motel, wow. songs that inspired part of the movement. So I think that people, if they take the time, Garrett, and they go into this, they'll discover it's richer, it's fuller, and it's much more nuanced than people may have thought. 
I think once they get that knowledge, then look in your own town. I did not know that in Tallahassee, Florida, there was the Abner Virginia Hotel. I drove as a child, well, I didn't drive, my relatives did, down Railroad Avenue. Of course, it would be Railroad Avenue in a southern town separating the black part of town from the white part of town. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we drove down this area, and I didn't know that this was in the Green Book. This place sat there in the woods. I had no idea. Look in your own community to find out where there is a location that may have been listed in the Green Book. And maybe it's time to get on board with that and try to restore that so that this part of history is not lost. They saved the Lorraine Motel. In his last week in office, President Barack Obama signed uh, a document make putting the A.G. Gaston Motel on the National Registry of Historic Places. Wow. All across the country. In um, Cincinnati, they're restoring the Negro Women's Club. that has been there for 150 years. Wow. These businesses, these organizations, their buildings and their locations should be saved because they're part of history that represents the diversity that was never taught about when we were growing up. We were taught a very much a limited view of history. Yeah. Mm. And now is the time to go back and write the true history of what happened. Thank you so much. This was such a tremendous blessing. Um, to me personally, and I know for all of us. Thank you, Katina. And I can't wait for the listeners to hear. What can we do? How would we best honor you as we share with our listeners, like, this work that you've done? What would be the best way, you know, to support you? It will be on the Apple uh, platform or wherever you get your podcast. So please subscribe. Yes. If you love the series, please rate the series. That would be helpful. But also, if people have Green Book stories, they should uh, visit the website that we're setting up and send us in those Green Book stories. My personal goal is to do one more of these road trips because I think there maybe California has a different view of uh, the Green Book. But I think to explore this aspect of America and to see how all of this affected people in different parts of the country is really powerful. So please subscribe to it uh, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast and um, write to us. I yes. certainly look forward to reading whatever anybody writes. And I think you all have really touched me in a very deep way with your questions and the way you all connected to this information. So I thank you for that. If you're looking for more information on what we discuss, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast, for $5, you can vote for future topics, listen to unedited interviews, submit questions, and more. Check us out at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. Remember that all the money that you give in these first 10 episodes will all go to the Denton African American Scholarship Foundation. On our next episode, we will be discussing convict leasing. We'll leave you with this quote from James Baldwin. We are all midwives trying to give birth to a new America. In the past, every time we came to the moment in which the new America could be born, white supremacy was the umbilical cord wrapped around the baby's neck, and we let it snuff the life out. Let's be better midwives as we try to be better people. 